I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. When the Supreme Court took away the legal right to abortion, adoption emerged in public dialogue as an alternative. But adoption? It's a complicated process with far-reaching consequences, and no one knows better than adoptees themselves. Later this hour, we'll meet Angela Tucker. Born in Tennessee and raised by adoptive parents, she's channeled her life experience into advocacy. But first, last week, Tennessee's former Speaker of the House, Glenn Cassida, and a close aide were arrested and charged with wire fraud and bribery in a kickback scheme. Here to explain what happened and where this case goes next is WPLN's State House reporter, Blaze Ganey. Hey, Blaze, how's it going? Hey, how's it going, Khalil? I'm it's doing well. Here. Doing well. Thanks to have you with us. So, Blaze, walk us through this timeline here. When did Glenn Cassida first come under scrutiny of federal prosecutors? Well, that, that was a, actually a year ago in January 2021. Uh, FBI agents searched his office at the Capitol in his home, as well as for other Republican lawmakers um, and uh, some of his uh, aides also. What was he accused of exactly? Well, well, right now he's being accused of essentially bribery and uh, in a, involved in a kickback scheme. It all... It's all has to do with uh, his chief of staff, Cade Cothran, who uh, established a fake company called Phoenix Solutions, a political consulting company under a fictitious name, Matthew Phoenix. He apparently used that fake name because he was worried lawmakers wouldn't want to associate themselves with him. Uh, this was right after Cade Cothran had came out and admitted to drug use as well as sending sexist and racist texts. Mm. Um, which is a, a whole nother uh, scandal. But, you know, out of maybe wanting to help his former chief of staff, Cassida then went over to the General Assembly and urged that they make the company a vendor. Uh, it worked. And according to records, Republican lawmakers spent well over $150,000 with the company. Um, and some of that money went to the accounts of Cassida and a, another lawmaker also. And therefore, that's the kickback scheme part of it. Um, and it involved, obviously, state funds, and it's believed that it involves some federal funds also. Okay, so, you know, what are the charges, the exact charges that he and his aide, Kate Cothran, are now facing? Yeah, so they're facing 20 counts, including wire fraud, bribery, and kickbacks concerning programs receiving federal funds. But both he and his aide uh, so far have pled not guilty, um, and they their attorney actually says that they can't wait to be vindicated. Were there any other statements made by Cassida or his attorneys? I know you were at the courthouse last week. Yeah, no, I was outside of the courthouse waiting uh, along with all the other media outlets here. And we were hoping that, you know, maybe the former House Speaker would have a statement or even his uh, former aide, Cothran, but that didn't happen. They both uh, came out of the courthouse and made beelines straight to their cars got in without basically saying a word. The only person to speak was actually Cothran's attorney. And she said exactly what I said earlier, that, you know, her client can't can't wait to be vindicated. Now, since the arrest, the Tennessean obtained a fresh a federal search warrant that gives us a bit more information about how the prosecutors built their case. Now, Blaze, what information did we gather from that report? Yeah, so I read over the report. It looks like, you know, the biggest development is that there were three confidential informants inside the General Assembly. 
to me, that means that it must have been legislators uh, that would have had this access um, that they spoke of. It doesn't name any of the individuals, so it's still unclear, you know, whether it is leadership or not. But I do know that throughout the session, House Speaker Cameron Sexton has said multiple times that he was working with the FBI on the case. It's unclear if he meant as an informant or simply just, you know, handing over information that they asked for. Um, but we also learned that Cassida and Smith, uh, Robin Smith, the other representative involved in this, um, all did a really sloppy job of keeping Cawthorn's name out of this, as well as Cade Cawthorn himself, who accidentally would use his own name when doing work under Phoenix Solutions hmm. and having to go back and tell people like, hey, make sure you don't mention my name to people uh, involved, you know, involved with this business. Wow. Um, you know, there was also a new development this week, as you mentioned, former Republican Representative Robin Smith. She's already resigned over her involvement in this scandal, but now she's asking for a delay in her court date. Can you give us some more information about that? Yeah, so, you know, she she was uh, sentenced, uh, or she she pled guilty and to one count of wire fraud, and her sentencing was going to be coming up soon. And because of the arrest of Cassida and Catherine, she now is saying her her sentence has now been pushed back to start on January 2021. I'm sorry, 2023, and so that she can testify in the trial, um, likely against Cassida and Catherine, and that trial is uh, set for October 25th. Now, you know, I'm curious about the reaction from other lawmakers. Have Republican leaders spoken about this? Yeah, they've uh, spoken out, basically just saying that they denounce all forms of corruption. And before this indictment came out, they passed an ethics reform package during the session that addressed some of the things that were done here. But they did stop short of actually punishing any particular person, you know, Cassida or Smith, who had at the time already resigned. Uh, he still today is actually a member, Cassida, of the General Assembly, and they could have and they could have voted at any time to remove him. And a, a kind of ironic thing, he actually voted on that ethics bill that, um, you know, was sort of targeting the, the work that he had done with uh, his aide in this Phoenix Solutions scam. Wow. Hmm. That's very interesting. You know, um, what's going to happen to his seat? As you said, he's still serving in the General Assembly. What's going to happen to his yes. seat? Yeah, so he said he wouldn't run again. Um, he actually ran you know, for Williamson County clerk and lost in the primaries. So uh, even if he wasn't, you know, going to jail or whatever ends up happening with his case, he essentially was not going to be in politics this upcoming year. Um, now, on November 8th, when a new person is elected, they will take over that seat. But until then, he essentially is, you know, a representative. Is this the last we've heard from Cassida, politically at least? You know, it's it's hard to say. Uh, I think a lot matters on what happens in the next couple of months as far as with this with this trial. But I mean, he already tried to run for Williamson County Clerk. Um, I would imagine it seems like he's a lifelong politician. I would imagine that you know maybe after all of this dies down, that he would try try again and see if the people are willing to elect him. We'll have to see about that. Blaze Ganey is WPLN State House reporter. Blaze, as always, thanks for the update. Thanks for your reporting. No problem. Thank you for having me. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk with Angela Tucker, who uses her experience as a transracial adoptee to expand how we think about adoption. 
We'll be right back. This is Nashville. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Adoption is often framed as a happy ending. Someone wants a child, and a child needs a home. Put them together, and poof, a new family is formed. But that's really just the beginning of the story, and the story is not nearly as simple as it's sometimes portrayed. Angela Tucker knows this well. She's an adoptee advocate, host of the podcast, The Adoptee Next Door, and a transracial adoptee. And she's using her platform to complicate the conversation around adoption by centering the voices of adoptees like herself. Angela Tucker, welcome to This is Nashville. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to talk with you. Now, you know, here in Tennessee, where you were born, a near total ban on abortion went into effect last week. And ever since Roe v. Wade was overturned, there's been a lot of talk about abortion as an alternative to adoption. You know, what? Yeah. what's your reaction when you hear this argument? Yeah, it's it's troubling because adoption really is it's like a private solution to social problems. And in much of the research, we know that many women are aborting because they they don't want to be pregnant anymore. And that's a really complex statement and I'm oversimplifying it. But for my purposes, they're not aborting because they want to avoid parenting. And as an adoptee growing up, sometimes that's that was what was on my mind a lot, like that I wasn't wanted. And so it really can get it's a false equivalency that hurts the adoptee, but so often we focus on listening to what adoptive parents want or what couples, prospective couples want, which is a baby. And so they're able to kind of conflate this issue, but really it's, they are very different tactics for different reasons. You know, how have those conversations, how have they impacted you personally? Well, it's interesting. I mean, every time I speak critically about the adoption industry, I I get an overwhelming amount of emails and DMs from people who are saying just, why can't you just be grateful for what you've been given? You've been given a better life. Just be happy. And it's really hard to try to explain to people the feeling of like being a commodity and I know Amy Coney Barrett in her, she wrote in the opinion that, you know, abortion, restricting abortion access is going to increase the domestic supply of infants. Hmm. <laughs> so that's a really hard thing as an adoptee, as essentially that like commodity at the middle of the equation. It's really hard to grapple with. Yeah, I, that that just feels uh different to me to talk about children and human beings as a commodity. Yeah, but, but speaking about right. Justice Comey, Coney Barrett, you know, last December, the Supreme Court held oral arguments on Dobbs, the case that obviously since has gone on to overturn Roe v. Wade. And in those arguments, Justice Amy Coney Barrett said that if abortion rights advocates were so concerned about, quote, 
the differences, the consequences of parenting and the obligations of motherhood that the flow from pregnancy that flow from pregnancy, then why don't the safe haven laws take care of that problem? Right. That sparked, right. That sparked a lot of pushback. You were actually interviewed about your reaction to that for New York Magazine. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I that? mean, it is really disheartening to basically like reduce biological parents, to reduce mothers, pregnant women, to just being like vessels to produce something that a lot of people want. And that's kind of what the safe haven laws do, that it doesn't provide any support to birth parents. And I think I've heard so many times from birth parents who say placing their children for adoption was actually so traumatic that they would rather abort all future pregnancies and that they have done that for many people. So this option of just placing your child in a, you know, a baby box or at the fire department doesn't alleviate the trauma specifically for the birth parents and the adoptees. But when we focus so much on like the Amy Coney Barrett's and what they want is basically a a newborn baby with no strings attached, then it's easy to see how both conservatives and progressives can use it as part of their movement. You know, that it, it's, it's really not just conservative Supreme Court justices, but I know a lot of progressives also love the idea of adoption as a way to say we're choosing our family and look at us like loving people who don't look like us and taking care of others. And so that virtue signaling is is fascinating because it comes from all angles. But my focus is really that we aren't listening to the adoptees who are growing up with these unique pressures of feeling of being you know, told to be grateful, but deep down within, like for myself, feeling kind of like a lack of foundation, like where did I come from and what happened? And that's really troubling. And it's, there's a lot of you know mental health issues within the adoptee communities stemming from this type of thing. You know, you said virtue sig- signaling to me, it feels like virtue parenting in, in a way. Mm. And you know, that that kind of you know it sounds like the emotional costs of adoption are really not often considered i mean and exactly you know what is the price of such difficult decisions and how does it affect people in ways that aren't commonly known that we're not paying attention to well i can speak from the adoptee perspective and i i often talk about what is called the ghost kingdom I don't think it's a commonly known phrase, but for adoptees, the ghost kingdom is, for me, it was a place that I went in my childhood where I just imagined who my birth parents must be because I I didn't know them. I couldn't know them. Tennessee's laws were closed. Adoptions meant that I couldn't know my birth mother's full name. And so growing up in my brain, I made Halle Berry, my birth mom. Okay. I made Magic Johnson my birth dad because Magic Johnson has this big smile. He plays basketball just like I do. Mm-hmm. Halle Berry's gorgeous. So I'm like, okay, why not? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's kind of a funny thing, but really the underpinning of that was this search for belonging and this this chasm of my identity. Like, who am I? And to grow up with 
white parents, you know, that aspect of transracial adoption is just another layer. I think it's always interesting when people hear me speak, they're really keen to hear me tell them that my adoptive parents are wonderful people. I had a great upbringing and all that is true, but people often want to stop there. So it's like, so if you got your needs met, you had all these great opportunities, like, yeah, you might've wondered who your birth parents were, but you were taken care of. And that's really the aspect that I like to hone in on that, that like lack of foundation really is what it feels like. It's really hard to build upon shaky, like shaky ground. Yeah, I understand. You know, in, in that New Yorker piece, you also, New York Magazine piece, you also mentioned Justice Coney Barrett's confirmation hearing, you know, where she talked about her adopted children, specifically the ones yes. from Haiti. You said that she committed microaggressions to them. And, yes. you know, it makes me think of your, your experience being African-American, being raised in a white, by white family in a white town. You know, what did you find pob- problematic about Justice Coney Barrett's comments? Yeah, generally uh, the white savior narrative. So she was talking about her kids who she adopted from Haiti and the way she framed their stories, which sharing their stories on such a public place was was Mm -hmm. sad for me on behalf of her kids. But she talked about how they brought them from Haiti to Chicago, where now they have everything they need. And one of the microaggressions I remember she said is um, that one of her daughters can deadlift as much as the males in her gym. And she was kind of making a, a statement to say that if she had grown up in Haiti, she wouldn't have had an opportunity to be strong. But the microaggression around racism is that as a white person, her talking about specifically her her physical prowess when she talked about all of her other, the other kids, specifically her biological kids, she spoke about them and their intellectual gifts. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really, when you listen to it carefully, you can see the difference that she makes between her biological kids and kind of what they've gained through her genetic pool and then her adopted kids and what they've gained through their noble charity. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm your host, Kalio Lekalona. We're talking this hour with Angela Tucker, adoptee advocate and mentor. So, you know, Angela, I'd like to talk about your story. You were born in Chattanooga, right? Yeah. And then you were adopted and you grew up in Bellingham, Washington. What is yeah. Be- what what is Bellingham like? <laughs> well, I was actually in foster care in Chattanooga, which is actually relevant to this conversation because you know, many people think if you're not aborted, like the conversation after uh the Supreme Court overturned Roe was we'll adopt your baby, basically. And for me, I sat in foster care for a year with a really wonderful family in Chattanooga, but nobody wanted to adopt me in the state of Tennessee because I had unknown issues, um, medical issues. And so that's why I was shipped across the country to Washington state to be adopted by my parents who had already adopted several kids with medical issues. So I just make that point because it's it's just not as clear cut as people saying we'll adopt your baby. They actually want a specific type of baby, usually white, able-bodied, healthy. Mm. And so people like myself 
get placed into foster care. And thankfully, I was adopted a year later, but that's not the case for many of the kids in foster care. So that that like kind of promise made by pro-life folks, for me, it just doesn't hold weight personally. Now, what was it like for you to grow up in Bellingham? It was it was tough in the sense of my racial identity. Bellingham is a town that's kind of right between Seattle and Vancouver, Canada, so real close to the the border. Predominantly white city, so my I really was not exposed to the black community until my college years, and that's tough and tricky. Um it's a beautiful city and really great place to grow up, but when you're kind of deracinated from your culture, then of course I'm going to be victim to assimilation. And so that's where I, I and many other adoptees who are adopted transracially feel like we're like straddling two worlds that I felt a great deal of kind of white privilege by osmosis, basically mm. like people People were like, oh, it's so strange there's a black girl here because we don't have lots of black families. But, oh, we see she's with those white folks. So she's good. She's safe. Uh, she's that kind of I feel like that was most of my childhood, what I encountered. So and that that's what complicates this conversation even more is people were really kind, but in a way that was only extended because I had these white people by my side. And so that kind of signaled that, that I was safe now, in some ways. Were your, with that dynamic, were your adoptive parents, were they prepared to have children with different cultural or ethnic backgrounds? You know, I was adopted and grew up in the 90s, so times were a little different. And I think my parents really focused on all of our medical needs. So certainly there was an awareness that all of the kids that they adopted came from different cultures. There's seven of us who were adopted and they had one biologically. And but the focus was really more on meeting the medical needs Um mm. I understand. If I had had an opportunity to know my birth family, they would have absolutely supported that for me at an earlier age, which would have been really helpful, which is why one of the platforms that I really speak on is if an adoption has to happen, let's make sure it's an open adoption that we can grow up knowing our people. I definitely want to talk about later on in the hour about closed adoptions versus open adoptions. But you know, from this experience you've had, you know, how vital is it to you that that parents who wish to adopt children of a different different ethnicity, that they be prepared to expose them to their cultures as best they can? It is so huge. However, it's it's doesn't happen partly because adoption agencies that receive federal money cannot mandate that their the couples who are seeking to adopt from them take classes on cultural competency, that it's because of the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act that makes it such that basically that can't be a stipulation. So there's all these other hoops that prospective adoptive parents jump through in order to adopt. And it's really frustrating to me that that cultural competency is not one of those requirements. Um, and so a lot of families 
start thinking about racism in relation to adoption after they've adopted the child and are increasingly hearing comments that are troubling to them out in the community. And then they're going to reach out and try to learn, you know, how to best support their child or move to a whole new neighborhood, which is really great. Uh, but it's, it is frustrating that that doesn't happen on the, the front end. Yeah. I, I, I see that, you know, and doesn't it get a little bit tricky, particularly like have your parents talk to you about how they ad adjusted and adapted for, for this, because, you know, no culture is a monolith, monolith, and that's certainly true about African American culture. What did yeah. what did your adoptive parents do as they were probably receiving microaggressions themselves about having you as their adopted daughter? Yeah, I mean, they really worked to find black role models and mentors for me in my life, and they pre-internet worked really hard to find like black dolls for me. So I know that they worked hard to make sure that I wasn't just seeing like stereotypical representations of blackness. However, it still meant that we would have to travel a couple hours in order for me to be in a city where I could just see black folks, and and knowing that it took so much effort made it hard for me to accept that. It kind of felt like a burden a little mm. bit. Um, and so mainly it was the conversations that we had in our home, which were really great and wide ranging. But it in this day and age, when people have more resources to, to make changes in their lives, I absolutely recommend that like white parents of kids of color outsource some of the parenting duties. And in some ways for me, it's no different than, you know, if you don't play piano, you're not going to try to teach your kid how to play piano. You're going to go find a piano teacher to do that. And I feel like there are things that white parents cannot teach their kids of color and they need to find someone else who can. What was it like I just I'm just thinking when you say that, you know, outsourcing parental responsibilities, I know that doing hair can be quite the chore and it is difficult. I watched my mother do my sister's hair and I could just imagine what was that like with you and your mother growing up? Yeah, <laughs> there was only one black woman in our city who knew black hair. And so my mom took me there when okay. I was really little. That person, though, did chemically straighten my hair. And so that was, I think I was five years old. <laughs> and mm. So that was tough, but it was combined with the fact that most of my friends and the people that I loved had kind of European silky straight hair. So even though my hair was straightened and at times now I wish that hadn't happened so early, I know that throughout my whole childhood, I did want that straight silky hair. So in high school, I was doing the wigs and the weaves. And so it was more that I didn't see any other beautiful, natural black hair around me. So that made it really hard for me to even play with mine and think about how my natural Afro could be beautiful and gets back to the microaggressions too. I know I did wear my hair out as an Afro at high school once and I went to the bathroom and people had stuck pens and pencils and twigs in my Afro. And I didn't know that until mm. I saw it. And that kind of humiliation really is a deterrent, especially in high school when all you want to do is fit in. Yeah. On a previous show, we invited 
two transracial adoptees on as guests. They, they talked about some of the challenges they faced growing up as people of color in a white household and community. Afterward, one of our guests who works in adoption placement, they emailed us to say, we need more families of color who are willing to adopt. What's your reaction to that? It's true, and it's more complicated than that. Um, actually, part of the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act mandated that adoption agencies recruit families of color to start adopting all of these black and brown kids. But because of our history, what I've heard in talking to like middle-class black families is that they say, why would I want to willingly give like a federal agency, all of my information, given how it's been used on us in the past. Mm -hmm. So the realities of, you know, redlining and um, kind of medical malpractice and all of these aspects of being Black in America filter into this conversation, which makes it more likely that Black families are just going to keep informally adopting kids, which is great and wonderful. But I think it's a, a misnomer to just say, you know, where are the Black families? Why aren't they adopting their own? It has so much to do with how Black folks have been treated in the past. And, and so that aspect has to get resolved first. And I even think about birth parents in that, that agencies have for years preyed on poor Black women to choose adoption. And so that trust is broken with a whole community when you see, you know, Black and Brown folks as the suppliers and white families as those who, you know, pick up that they're, they're the ones that are demanding mm. it. So yeah. it's complicated. And and I do wish I had the conversations with my parents, like I do wish that black families would have adopted me. And I, I often fantasize again about my ghost kingdom. What would that have been like if I had black parents? And I know it's not that simple. No, and it definitely would have been very different if it were Holly Berry and Magic Johnson. Um, Ooh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, you know, in 2008, you began the process of finding your birth parents. You know, what was... You, you talked about it a little bit. Tell me more. What was driving you to find out who they were? I have always wanted to know where I came from. And I wanted the truth. Like, what happened? Why did I need to be adopted? And I, I all the stories that I made up in my brain, I knew were just stories. But with the, the laws in the state of Tennessee, I couldn't legally get my original birth certificate until I turned 21. And so I was just counting down the days <laughs> until mm. I turned 21. Now, when you talked with your adoptive parents about your desire to find your birth parents, what were those conversations like? Kind of beautiful. I mean, I feel like growing up, they were as curious about my biological family as I was. They were always... There was never any illusion in my family that adoption was just a perfect happy ever after solution, that for all of us, it was clear that adoption results from a trauma. And so in that way, I'm really glad that I didn't feel like I couldn't talk about my adoption or my birth parents. So, you know, growing up, my parents would often wonder aloud, you know, I wonder where you got your athleticism from. We wish we could know. And so that was 
always felt very supportive. So they were pretty eager also to learn. I think for me, it just felt like their interest in knowing my birth family made me felt feel more loved. You know, your experience is captured in the documentary Closure, which is co-directed by your husband, Brian Tucker. It details the emotional struggles for everyone involved, you, your adoptive family, your birth family. It, it's a lot. Did making that yeah. film change anything for you or your family? In, I mean, well, the result of the film, <laughs> finding my birth parents absolutely changed my life. But the film being out in the world has spurred on some really great conversations. It, it, it certainly highlighted to me how rare it is to hear kind of an unfiltered, unedited version from adoptees about our reality, that that really kind of wasn't out there very much. And that the reason is so many adoptive parents put maybe an unknowing pressure on their child not to speak about their birth parents and their that life. And a lot of adoptees internalize that to feel like if I if I wonder about my birth parents, that my adoptive parents will think that. I don't love them. Mm -hmm. And so I found that I had a really unique little sliver because I knew that talking about my birth parents wouldn't make my adoptive parents feel that way. So the film, putting it out there, the avalanche of adoptee stories came out. And I'm so excited to see more of like hashtag adoptee voices on Instagram and on TikTok. And even so, though, there's so much pushback. I mean, it's nearly weekly that I get comments from people saying, you know, you should be grateful. What's wrong with you? And that's a heavy burden, mm -hmm. a heavy price to pay. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Angela Tucker and learn more about how her life experience has led her to advocacy for other adoptees. We'll be right back. This is Nashville. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. I've been talking this hour with Angela Tucker, who has channeled her own experience as a transracial adoptee into advocacy and mentorship for other adoptees and those looking to adopt. She's the host of the podcast, The Adoptee Next Door, and her book, You Should Be Grateful, is slated to come out next year. Angela, thanks again so much for being here. Yeah, thank you. Now, you know, before the break, we were talking about finding your birth family and how heavy that experience was for everyone involved. You know, you were able to look at them. You were able to set eyes upon them, to touch them, to smell them. <laughs> what was that like for you? That was unbelievable. I mean, I've never seen anyone in my life that looks like me. And my birth dad and I look a lot alike, mm. which is, it. I could hardly, I think both he and I, could hardly stop just staring at each other, not even talking. <laughs> mm -hmm. And there were other things outside of kind of the obvious genetic pieces that I was really excited to see, like sharing my birth dad's smile and skin tone and stuff. But the other aspects, the mannerisms that were similar was pretty exciting. Um, for example, 
I love words and spelling. I've always loved spelling and to so much so that I will like interrupt people if they've said an interesting word and I will spell it out loud (laughs) for no reason whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And when I met my birth dad and I was introducing him to my husband, I said, you know, this is my husband, Brian, my birth dad stopped and spelled it out loud. He said, Brian, B-R-Y-A-N. And Brian and my adoptive mom and I and my siblings just looked at each other and could not believe it. (laughs) So Mm. those sorts of experiences that a lot of people who grow up in just your biological family, you take for granted. You don't realize that just that ability to know where those mannerisms come from allows you an opportunity to cement your identity and to know who you are. And so for me to have to wait 25 years for that was both absolutely elating, elated. I was elated, but also so sad that I had to wait so long for that. Was it hard to find your birth parents? It was, it wasn't easy. Um, The laws around the original birth certificates are gradually changing and opening up throughout the states. But in Tennessee, there's a really rigorous administrative process that you have to go through when I turned 21. And I guess for people listening who probably don't know, an adoptee gets an amended birth certificate. So my birth certificate says my adoptive parents' names on it, and it says they gave birth to me, (laughs) which Mm. is really kind of gross. And so there is an original birth certificate. Everybody has one in the United States, and that has our birth parents' full names on them. And so that's like a holy grail document for adoptees because it would then tell me my birth mother's last name and hopefully I could find her. So I applied to get that, which involves money. And I was in college at the time. And so I had to ask my parents to borrow some money. And it was just a really laborious, tedious process. And and ultimately I didn't even get it. Mm. Um, and it, it feels awful to, I still want that document, even though I have a relationship now with my birth parents, it, it feels like it's something that I, that belongs to me. And it's sad to me that it's sitting in a file drawer collecting dust. So you, um, you still don't have it, but you were able to somehow locate and identify and find your birth parents. How'd you do that? Yeah. There was one place on some of the documents that my parents were given at the time of my adoption where they forgot to redact my birth father's first name. Mm. And he has a really unique name. His name is Otirius. And so they did redact his last name, but I could tell it was like four or five letters long. And so my husband and I would just stay up all night Googling Otirius and trying to think of the last names. And since it's so unique, we found that there were just two people in the state of Tennessee with that name. And one had a last name that was fairly short. And that's my birth dad, Otirius Bell. Wow. So once we looked that up, we found this man who is just a, he was, he passed away, but was a celebrity of Chattanooga. Everybody knew him as Sandy the Flower Man. And so we found a Facebook page, a fan page for him. And that was the first time I ever saw his photo. And it was really undeniable. 
So through a happy accident of a clerical error, you were able to find exactly. your dad. That's, that's exactly. wonderful. Now, you know, I want to talk about adoption a little bit. There are two different kinds of adoption, right? There's closed adoption and open adoption. Can you can you explain the difference between the two? Yeah, I mean, it really is a spectrum, but in general, closed adoption is what I grew up in, which means you can't know your birth parents, you don't know their names, you can't get in contact with them. Some people might have contact through the adoption agency, but no direct contact. And then there's openness, which is a spectrum, but in general, it means that the adoptive parents have some contact information for their children's birth parents, and they could get in touch. And on the far end of that spectrum is is where birth parents are really integrated into their children's lives. They're coming over and hanging out, and that's really wonderful. There's a lot of fears that that confuses a child, but the research shows otherwise. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Are most adoptions closed? No, um, things have changed over the years. And so closed adoptions are really a thing of the past. Uh, openness is the the going best practice. However, adoptive parents have a, pretty much full control of how open they'd like those adoptions to be. And given that we're often seeing adoptions cross like class lines and race lines, it may it oftentimes is really uncomfortable for adoptive parents to engage in relationships with their children's birth parents who may live a very different life than them. Mm-hmm. And so for that reason, a lot of times openness isn't happening. You know, what about the laws surrounding adoption? Is there a difference from state to state? Yes, every state differs. And that can make it kind of a, a legal landmine for a lot of us seeking our truth and for birth parents who may not know what their rights are from state to state. But yeah, there are they differ. And here in Tennessee, those laws are pretty old, right? In Tennessee, they are very gradually changing. So I think many people would call it like a compromised state where adoptees can have access to some of their paperwork, but not all. Okay. Okay. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Lake We're talking this hour with author and adoptee advocate, Angela Tucker. Now, Angela, in your advocacy work, you talk with adoptees and people looking to adopt, and I'm sure there's a wide, wide range. But what are some of the things you're hearing from adoptees about their experiences? A lot of adoptees are talking about um, wishing that they could have a better, a more of a sense of belonging. And adult adoptees or even late teens who I've mentored talk a lot about how they feel like they are people pleasers and that they've really been like kind of conditioned to become people pleasers, that it's really hard to say no. And that's something that they they work on with me in mentorship or therapy. Um, and I think that stems from the adoption and the pressure to feel like it's a great thing where really deep down it feels confusing. And that's why I love mentoring adoptees. There are 
conversations that adopted people can have with other adoptees that really feels unsafe to have with anyone else, including our really well-intentioned and well-meaning parents. Mm. You know, it's like this lifetime of finding and understanding your identity and your history. Yes. What are you telling the people you work with about the search for one's identity? Just, I'm trying ultimately to stop that kind of deracination before it happens. Um, When I work with prospective adoptive couples or agencies, that's where that topic of openness comes in and to help people understand the trauma that is just being separated from our first parents. That alone is traumatic, no matter how beautiful you make their life moving forward. So if people can start to accept that, then I feel like adoptees have a really a much greater chance at feeling whole. You know, is it is that a hard perspective for prospective parents to hear the trauma of that separation? It is. Many adoptive parents really don't think of adoption as a trauma. Um, especially the younger and younger you get, which is why so much of the abortion discussion centers on newborns instead of, you know, why wouldn't it expand to the 420,000 kids that are in foster care when you say, you know, we'll adopt your child. We're actually saying we'll adopt your newborn because of that blank slate sort of mentality. Like we just want, once we pluck you up at a day or two old, there's no harm, no foul, no trauma. And in reality, we know when we we know from a lot of research how much happens in utero. And then immediately after birth, with skin to skin contact being so important. And those things all kind of get thrown by the wayside for some reason in adoption conversations. And we forget that. And in reality, it it is absolutely traumatic to then be placed with strangers who you don't recognize their smells. And as a newborn, of course, you can't articulate that. And so it can get chalked up to just being like a really colicky child or a really clingy child. And I know that that, there's so much more to that. And I think for me as a young kid, I I know that like hide and seek, that game was was actually really terrifying. Mm. And I think it probably comes from that trauma of being born and immediately separated from the only person I knew. You know, hearing hearing you talk about your experience makes me think of all the nuances that come with these conversations. What would you like to see change in our conversations about adoption? Well, I'm just uh, hopeful that we can gradually change that basic really harmful fairy tale narrative of adoption. And I think we can do that if we listen to more adoptee perspectives and truly believe our complexity and also bring in birth parents and and their experiences of what it's like to lose their child, not know for my birth mother, not know where I grew up, what I was doing, yet be expected to just continue on. So Let's add those perspectives into this conversation and then see where we where we can get to. 
Now, you've written a memoir. It's coming out next April. It's called You Should Be Grateful, something that you've you've mentioned a few times in our conversation today. Yeah. You know, that title yeah. carries a whole bunch of weight, I can tell. <laughs> Break it down for me. Where does it come from? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just comes from a lot of what we've talked about. I mean, I've heard things like, you know, aren't you so glad you weren't murdered, a.k.a. aborted, and growing up in in whiteness meant that I had a really narrow view of what it meant to be black. So when people tell me how grateful I must be because my parents are so wonderful, to me, that's just an underpinning of white supremacy at play. Like you're also saying that my biological family isn't worthy, that they weren't that they would have inherently been bad parents. And that is not true. A, I know that now, but it, it's really tricky. So yeah, the title is really intended to provoke thought about that knee-jerk reaction that that adoption is just a the perfect solution when in reality the trauma extends for for life. So that my book it um I highlight so many other adoptees who I work with and, and their nuanced, complex, layered identities and how they work through them, too. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate talking with you. This has been fantastic. Angela Tucker is an advocate to men and mentor to adoptees. Her memoir, You Should Be Grateful, is coming out in April next year. Angela, again. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for sharing your story with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, it's time for another Citizen Nashville. In the wake of Roe v. Wade being overturned and now the near total ban on abortions in Tennessee, a lot of people are left wondering, what does this mean for birth control and emergency contraception? Tune in tomorrow. We're bringing you Citizen Nashville. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harush and Rose Gilbert. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tutto. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at thisisnashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekaluna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other. <laughs>